I'm Melissa Fleming, and I'm the United Nations Chief of Communications. Welcome to my podcast, Awake at Night. This season, I'm speaking to people at the UN who are at the forefront of the response to the COVID-19 pandemic, from health responders on the ground to those who combat it in cyberspace. My guest today is Neil Walsh, who is the UN Chief of Cybercrime. Welcome. Thank you, Melissa. First of all, the coronavirus represents a very personal threat to you. Can you tell me about why that is? As we all know, the impact of coronavirus, if you get it, it damages your lungs. If you end up on a ventilator, that leads to really bad outcomes. And only 50% of people who end up on a ventilator survive. I was diagnosed with colorectal cancer for the second time in 2018. And then during surgery and treatment, um, I was lucky enough to have multiple brain hemorrhages, followed by pulmonary embolisms in both lungs, which has left my lungs damaged in a way that they'll never recover from. So uh, my oncologist in Vienna has a particularly wry sense of humour where he, he described cancer as being somewhat unfortunate. And I said, well, what would it be like for me if I got uh, the coronavirus? And he said, really bad, which uh, I think is his speak for really dead. So for me, it's been being about avoiding that, trying to do everything I can not to get it and uh, allowing myself to be sitting here with you today. Well, yeah. So you're in that category of highly vulnerable people. Yeah. Um, you're in a country that has um, done a pretty good job of, of controlling mm -hmm. the pandemic, but how else are you uh, managing and how are you, what are you doing to, to stay safe? So it was really following the advice, and I think you, you rightly say we're really lucky to be in a country that took it seriously, locked down quickly, put quarantine measures in place. So it's been staying at home, and I religiously stayed at home. I only went out if I had to go to a medical appointment or go and pick drugs up from the pharmacy. So doing that, wearing a mask, washing hands, and um, making sure that I really just followed the advice, because I think as we've seen, it works. If you follow it, then you limit your opportunity of getting infected. You are at home with how many children, did you say? <laughs> four. Four. I lost count. <laughs> so four, four children and all under the age of? All under 10. So I've got 10, 8, 6 and 3, which... All living under lockdown. All living under lockdown, all off school, off crash, trying to manage, I would say manage. I, you know, my, my wife remarkably took on the, the homeschooling bit, which I think we realised after week two, it's not about them learning anything. It's about managing to survive, managing to survive, being locked down together, not killing each other and not losing the knowledge that you already had. Because it's not schooling, right? You're not sitting in a class with a professional teacher. We're just trying to help them get through this period and then. But you're also working full time. I see you extremely active. Yeah, full time. It's, I don't know about you, but my work doubled uh, during this time because I had the normal day to day Vienna based stuff. But then so much of my work was with with New York on a lot of the COVID based responses in New York. So you work during the day, have a little bit of dinner, get the kids washed, get them to bed. And then I would be back on comfortably three or four nights a week working nine till midnight, 1am. And that's just the way it had to be. It's the way it had. And we're going to get into that a little bit further because um, things have the impact of the mm. coronavirus has really also, I imagine, impacted your work. But I want to talk about yeah. 
that soon, but just a bit more about your health situation, because you're very vocal um, and public <laughs> about yes. your own struggle, which I, you know, is kind of unusual. I, I know as someone who survived cancer myself, it was a dilemma. Do I go public with mm -hmm. this? Um, why, why did you decide to speak online and, and so forcefully about your cancer? It's a great question. I mean, the, my first cancer was rectal cancer and people tend not to talk about thumbs or genitals or breasts that get a bit uncomfortable. And for me, when I was diagnosed, I was a, a law enforcement officer in the UK the first time and getting getting rectal cancer at 26 is incredibly rare. Um, it's like a 0 0.00 something percent of patients will be diagnosed at that age. And I'd had symptoms since I was 21. And they're the really obvious symptoms. If you have blood when you go to the toilet, that is not normal. And I ignored that for a period of time because I thought, oh, I don't want to go to the doctor. I don't want to have something put up my bum. I don't want to do this. And stupidly, I ignored it. And it then reached the point when I was 25-ish, where sometimes I'd go to the loo. The only thing coming out was blood and lots of it. And I thought, this is not right. So I went back to the doctor who said, don't worry, it's nothing. Um, you're young, you lift weights, you go to the gym. It's probably a hemorrhoid, something like that. So here's the treatment. It'll fix it. It'll go away. And it didn't. So at least I went back and I went back again and said, it's no better. And we did the same treatment regime again for six weeks. No change. Went back to him again, said, no, no better. And he said, well, I'll send you to the hospital just to, to be checked, to be on the safe side. And I went out to the hospital and this was in the north of London, uh, 10th of May, 2006, a day that I'll never forget. And uh, <laughs> I remember lying semi-naked on a couch with my knees up to my chin, wearing a shirt and tie. And that is not a good look for any man to ever have. Being naked in front of a doctor is fine. Shirt, tie, nothing else. That's just weird. So suddenly a uh, doctor is there and he said, do you mind if my medical student comes in? I said, yeah, of course. And of course, this stunningly beautiful girl, like 21, comes in. I'm sort of lying there going, hello. And I don't know who was more uncomfortable, her or me, but swiftly later they said actually you've got a you've got a tumor in your rectum and you've more than likely it's cancerous long story short then went into lots of surgery treatment i had my rectum and part of my descending colon of the large intestine removed had to have an ileostomy a stoma so a bag on my tummy for six months until they were able to reconnect me replumb me and then over the next few years next five years it took to recover from that and to try and get some element of, of health back whilst still working in, in law enforcement. And then we're back to where I am now, which is another cancer diagnosis two years ago. And uh, only yesterday I learned that I have to have another significant uh, sort of abdominal surgery in the next couple of weeks. So what? Stop there. Yeah. I mean, you're just <laughs> speaking so casually about this. Well, it is, well the, you started it started at the cancer journey at 26. You're 40 now. Yep. You were just about to plan so perhaps, 38 things seemed okay and then 40 and you just went to the doctor in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic yeah, for a checkout so and what did they tell you so I have I've had so many abdominal surgeries now so my last cancer in 2018 um, they did a very rare procedure I think there's only a handful of people worldwide have had it which is the first part of your large intestine which is on the right side of your body mine was 
cut off, turned upside down and stitched onto my bum muscles and then connected to my small intestine. That's all I have left now of the large intestine. So I've had loads of abdominal surgery and I had an emergency surgery to cut me open from my sort of from my chest to my pubic bone when things got stuck inside and my bowel was obstructed by by a scar. So I've been opened up so many times that my just my abdomen and pelvic region is a bit of a mess and I learned that I now have uh, five hernias where the bowel is stuck in different bits of my abdomen and pelvis and that that needs dealt with reasonably swiftly otherwise there's some risk around that of either the bowel perforating or the blood supply being cut off so yeah that's going to happen reasonably soon. So the question of um, why you decided to go public. To go public. Partially, it was a much cheaper way of having therapy than paying someone. And I thought, honestly, if you can survive stuff like this by understanding the symptoms, then it's kind of my job to do that. So much of my time then in law enforcement, I'd worked in counterterrorism, I'd worked on the 9-11 inquiry, I'd worked in human trafficking. And you see, the, you see the really bad parts of humanity. You see where things have happened to people that they can't prevent, where they have been a victim of crime, some really horrendous criminality. And I thought, if I can do something to minimize this disease and it's talking about it because no one talks about it because this when I was diagnosed the first time it's when we didn't have internet on our phones and you had to go to a library and I realized that day when I was diagnosed that my risk of death was pretty high and I thought if I can do something to draw attention onto this to what the symptoms are then let's do that and then that's the same approach I took in 2018 that if this is what's going to happen to me if it helps one person to understand what's happening in their body and to seek help and seek advice and maybe save their lives, then it's probably worth it versus being a little bit embarrassed about something we really shouldn't be embarrassed about. Have you gotten any feedback that you helped somebody? Yeah, I've had some really nice feedback of people who have gone to the doctor with symptoms and been diagnosed and got treated at a very very early stage. So that for me is lovely because with the treatment and then with when I had pulmonary embolisms, blood clots in my lungs about a month after surgery, that was the highest risk of death at that point because they can be really serious very, very swiftly. So on, I think in 2018, there was four occasions I was told by a doctor, you may not survive tonight. So and I warned them, look, the paperwork's going to be immense if I die tonight. My wife's going to be really hacked off with you. So you've got to do what you can to save me in this space. So lucky enough to have gotten through all of that and being public about it, I think, helps people to understand we're all human. We all go to the loo. We all go outside. We all have things that can go wrong with our bodies. And if people understand it, then hopefully it helps to save a life. And for me now, as I go into this next operation, realizing that it will be, there's some risk around it. And I remember in 2018, before the, the sort of third operation I was having, recording a video for my kids and my wife in case I died and recording a video for if there had to be a funeral. And obviously, if I was there, that probably wasn't a great result. What was your message to them at that time? I never, I'm not massively emotional, um, but, you know, recording a video saying that if you're watching this, it means I'm dead. And for my, my kids who trying, it was stuff like, well, here's what life is like. Here's the good bits and the bad bits. Here's how you can keep yourself safe. Here's how people will help you out. And you're going to have a remarkable life and just do the best that you can. Don't don't worry about stuff. Just crack on with what you can do. And, you know, whatever happens, I was there for you at the start. And you've got a great mum who'll be there for you in the future. Do you still have that video? I do. I do. Probably have to re-record them soon.
because it's two years ago and you know how fast kids grow up. So let's hope you never I need have to, to show that. I hope not. I hope not. But I've always been of the opinion it's better to be prepared for something than... And this is where you could walk out into the street now, have a heart attack and drop dead or get hit by a tram. I'm one of those lucky people that if it did happen, I've had a bit of warning and a bit of time to prepare. Which is why you also issued a warning on Twitter about people like you who have health conditions and are particularly vulnerable to COVID-19. Yep. What was that message? Because of cancer treatment and steroid treatment currently, and the impact of pulmonary embolisms on my lungs, I'm one of those people that is immunosuppressed. I'm one of those that's of a higher risk from the COVID-19 coronavirus. So I've got something to ask of you, please. Please don't kill me. Please don't kill me by choosing to go to the pub, by choosing to go to a club, to a restaurant, go out when you don't have to. Please don't be the silent killer, the silent carrier of this virus when you can prevent that by socially distancing yourselves from other people. I know it's not nice, I know it's not easy. It's going to be hard, it's going to get harder. But our lives are in your hands. We can't prevent lots of things that happen to us, but you can help us. So please, don't leave my kids without a dad. Please, socially distance yourselves. And it was really to people to say, this is serious, okay? This was still back in the time where lots of people weren't taking it seriously, where there was a a real disconnect in messaging in different parts of the world. This is a bloody awful disease. Look at the number of people who have died from it. Hundreds of thousands of people have died. Millions are infected, are still infected. And we can help each other as a society, as a population, And it's by following that advice of staying home and staying safe and trying to limit the spread. And for me, it was, I can do what I can to try and not get infected, but you can help me by doing the same thing. It's not simply those of us who are vulnerable, keeping ourselves safe. We all have a role to play in this. And when, you know, when we listen to our boss, Secretary General talks about solidarity, that's solidarity, not spreading something where you have the ability to keep away from it, to not expose yourself to large amounts of people. That's, you know, that's a good thing that we can all do. And we can do it by simply staying at home. And how did people react to that tweet? Most people, there was some really nice comments and retweeting and sharing of that. There was one guy came in, I'll not not share the word that I described him as after I read the comment, but it was fairly, you know, it was like, oh, this is all crap. How do you, you know, you kind of deserve to get this. I was like, meh, yeah, whatever, man. And we see this sort of thing on Twitter and social media all the time. There is always going to be someone who is a, you're going to have to tell me a nice word to describe someone like that, but it's, it's where you can, you're never going to please 100% of the people 100% of the time. And there's always going to be someone who will make a comment. And usually it's going to be a guy with a fake photo, without his real name on it. And if that's how brave you are, bring it on. Your job is trying to stop the scourge of cybercrime. What are you seeing now that is different than pre-COVID times? I think what we often see is, or what the public probably don't often see, is the scale, the sheer scale of criminality, crime that happens online. And some of the most awful parts of it are the the exploitation and abuse of children. Um, Sometimes you'll hear a term child pornography and it's actually a really awful term. It doesn't exist. We all know what pornography is and 
when I was a cop, the first time I had to watch a video of a very young child being raped, at no point in that space do you think, well, that's porn. Pornography is adults who have consented to do something for money. A child who is being raped online is not involved in porn. They're being abused, they're being exploited. And the scale of that is phenomenal. In fact, only a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of the partner organisations that we work with called the Internet Watch Foundation, they put out a report saying that in April alone in the UK, which is where they're based, they had blocked 300,000 attempts to access child abuse material on the Internet. 300,000 in one month. We see that at scale around the world. And we see that on the darknet, the encrypted hidden part of the internet as well, has grown by hundreds of thousands of posts of child abuse videos of pictures. And these aren't, you know, sometimes people think child abuse, what's a 16, 17, 18 year old um, having sex on camera. That is child abuse and that is illegal. But I'm talking about pre-verbal infants. So we're talking from a couple of years old right the way down to newborns being raped and abused online in live streaming broadcasts pay-per-view. And this happens at scale around the world, day in, day out. At scale. At scale. And it's worse now. These, this is a phenomenon I know we've talked many times. Yeah. Before the COVID-19, you know, lockdowns. And that's it. it, This already was disturbing you. And this has... It was already there, but the scale of increase now, because you have, if we're lucky enough to have a home to sit in, and we realise that not everybody does. But for those who are, we see we're all in front of a camera without realising it so many hours of the day on your phone on your laptop, on your tablet, on goodness knows what else, on TVs that have cameras integrated into them now. So we've seen availability, the access to victims has increased. Okay, if you're a child abuser, you need access. And if you are involved in sharing imagery and lots of them to get onto some of the really horrible internet forums, uh, they have to share hundreds or thousands of images to be allowed access. And those images are typically of one's own children or children that you have access to. So we've seen that increase. Now we've seen criminals talking online about how to get access to children, how to share more images, how to take captures as they refer to it, or caps of kids, uh, their own kids who aren't aware of what's happening. So a TV camera, a camera on a laptop, on a tablet being left on without the knowledge of the child in the house. So they get captures of them naked or semi-naked or for older kids who are maybe masturbating on um, in their room and trying to capture that and then sell it. And this happens around the world day in, day out. How does that affect you as a father of four young children? It might sound strange. I don't think it affects those who have kids or don't have kids any differently. Well, it I just think horrendous. most of us don't know about it. I mean, I, I, I feel really shocked yeah. listening to you. I just well, can't I imagine... Well, that, I, that just you'd think that these are just outliers who'd be doing this. You might think this. there's one or two, right? One you or think two, it's going to be the yeah. creepy guy in the park in a dodgy raincoat. It isn't. It could be you. It could be me. There is no profile of a child sex offender. And I've certainly worked in cases in the past of women running a child's children's nursery, a kindergarten, who were abusing the kids, filming it and selling it. So it's not just men. No, it is principally men. Let's make that really clear. It is principally men. Probably in the high 90% is principally men, but there are women as well. And the reason that we draw attention onto this, because if you want to stop something, if you want to counter something, you have to understand what that threat picture is. And if you close yourself off to women, maybe being an offender, you close yourself off to saving a life. Because if you don't think it could be the mum or the sister or the aunt, 
or the friend who has access to kids, then you might not be able to take that intervention that saves a child's life. How can you save a child's life then with your job? So we can and we do, and this is the part of my job that I love most, where I say it's not me, it's my staff. I have the best staff in the UN. Sorry, no offence to the rest of you, but I do. And they're around the world. They are working in some really challenging environments, some really difficult places to work. So my cyber work, for example, it works globally, but it's run from El Salvador. And my colleague Nayeli, she runs the world from El Salvador. So she works with the host nation as well as commanding the, the, the work around the world. And some of the work that she and my other colleague Luisa in Guatemala have done is literally life-saving, where they've helped to investigate, help the local authorities to find uh, offenders who are operating online. There was one uh, last year who was um, abusing children online, where the children are groomed, where they're convinced to do something, usually sexualized. Often it starts with, it'll either be an adult fronting up as an adult and offering compliments you're very pretty you're beautiful etc etc gaining confidence gaining control and then getting into a sexualized environment or it's an adult pretending to be a child and that'll be done through online gaming it'll be done through social media and it'll be a fake a fictitious um profile which will look like a child but it'll be an adult operating it and it'll convince them to take their clothes off and then it'll be convincing them to masturbate online send a video share the video and then the extortion aspect comes in if you don't do this for me here's what's going to happen and we thankfully through the work that louisa and naeli did we managed to we, we had trained the guatemalan authorities for police prosecutors and judges how to deal with this stuff and they were a marvelous country and counterparts to work with and they identified an offender on their own who was operating in their community we were helping them to gain evidence and gather evidence internationally and they brought this guy to justice who had um, offended against over 70 children online in multiple countries who had physically raped children in his own community very young children he was convicted of numerous crimes and got a 40-something year sentence for Because that. this is also the phenomenon. This is happening in, say, El Salvador, but it's being sold internationally exactly. all and over that's the world. Where we look at there's some real challenges for some countries to face. So um, if we look at child abuse on the open internet, the ordinary open internet that you could find with a couple of couple of clicks on a search engine, you will find child abuse material. And unfortunately, the, the highest rate of hosting for that is in Europe right now. It used to be the US, now it's in the Netherlands. And some of that is due to legislation. Some of it's due to the approach that web hosting companies take because so much of the problem is online, but the solution can be brought by tech companies as well. But there's a human solution in here as well, which is about, we saw a case, we've seen numerous cases in Southeast Asia where children, very young children, have been being sexually abused online on pay-per-view channels, usually by their parents. And in some cases... Sorry when they, to interrupt. Please. By their parents? Most of it's by parents. Their parents are putting their children in front of these broadcasts? Um, raping them, sexually abusing them, and most child abuses within the family unfortunately um but for money in some southeast asian communities i won't say which countries but what we've seen is when those offenses have been detected when the police have managed to identify where they are they've gone to the house they've gotten control of the child saved them arrested mum and dad and mum and dad have said yeah we know what we're doing is really horrible it's awful but the money we the money we make from this is being used to feed the children in our village You have people making a conscious choice to rape and sexually torture their own children 
to make money to feed other kids in a village. It's twisted. To say the least. To what extent is in the digital age mm-hmm. a contributor to this? Does it... it makes it easier. If, if I think, uh, you know, I'm 40, when I was growing up in Northern Ireland as a... If I was a 14, 15-year-old and I wanted simply to see porn, to find that would have been really difficult. You had to find somebody with a magazine. Now, everybody has a device. And we often get asked the question, how, what filters do you put on? How do you keep them from seeing this? doesn't work okay this is why we need a conversation our children our job as be it for us as diplomats be it for educators be it as parents be it as adults in society we have to have an open conversation about what's out there and how we take we take control of this and how to help our kids make better reason judgments and there's a really nice campaign just started in new zealand which uh, they have some wonderful videos actually of a a, a couple of porn actors knock on the door of a house. Hiya, I'm Sue. This is Derek. We're here because your son just looked us up online, you know, to watch us. Matt! Matt, darling, there's some people here to see you! And it's answered, they're clearly naked, and the mum is like, what the hell are you doing here? And they say, well, your son's been watching us online, and he needs to understand that what he sees with us isn't a normal relationship. We're not talking about consent. And the son turns up, sort of drops the cereal bowl, holding the laptop. But this is actually how we get into a really good conversation. We can't, if we put our heads in the sand and say, this stuff doesn't exist, or I don't want to have that conversation. I've done this with my kids, with my 10-year-old, sensitively, age-appropriately, trying to understand, has she seen this online? She doesn't have a phone herself. She's not getting a phone until she's 55, at least. That's my decision, right? But I know there's kids in her class that do. And if you have kids in a class with a mobile phone, they will find porn. It's going to happen. It's going to happen really swiftly. So I want them to understand what is normal, what's not, what's acceptable, what's not. How do you stay safe? What if you're in a relationship in your teens and your boyfriend or your girlfriend sends you a picture that's naked of them? What's your responsibility there? What happens if you share that with people who they didn't want to have that? You might be committing a crime. You could go to jail for that. But it comes back to it's not about criminalising kids, and I hate seeing kids getting criminalised. But it is about being aware of what is our role in society. We have to understand their lives are different to what ours were, the way that ours were different from our parents. You mentioned a bit about your upbringing in Northern Ireland and... So what led you anyway to work in law enforcement? Wasn't a plan. <laughs> Nothing in my life has been a plan. Um, but I, I grew up in Northern Ireland in Belfast, which uh, during the 80s and the 90s had some really, before that, but during my life, lifetime had some really difficult terrorism problems. And I saw shootings and bombings routinely throughout my childhood. Family, friends who were killed, maimed, murdered. And I made a decision, I think, really early as a child that I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a trauma surgeon, dropping out of a helicopter, going to stick people back together because of all the, the, the stuff that I'd, I'd seen in Northern Ireland. But when I was uh, sort of 11 years old, and I, I remember this as clear as right now, I, it was a Saturday morning and I was in the city centre of Belfast with my dad in a clothes shop. And I felt it before I heard it. And it was the shockwave of a bomb going off. And the windows came in round us. My dad was on the other side of the shop. And the, the noise, I've never heard a noise like that. And you imagine if you've been in a nightclub for five hours standing beside the speakers and your ears are vibrating and there's this sort of ee 
and you can't hear anything else. And I sort of looked around, there's dust and glass and it's really not very good. And I saw my dad and he came over, grabbed me and we walked outside. And this was quite a small street uh, called High Street in Belfast. And back at this point in the early 90s, uh, police cars were very heavily armoured, sort of BMWs, Ford Escort vehicles, that they didn't have blue lights on them. You couldn't tell, it didn't say police on the side, but they were clearly police cars because they were very heavily armoured with bulletproof glass on them. And what it turned out had happened was a IRA terrorist had walked along to this police car with a a radio, like a Walkman-sized device that had a Semtex plastic explosive in it plopped it onto the roof of the car and the cops inside had heard the clunk and knew what it was and they opened their doors to like a 45 degree angle to dissipate the blast out of the car and as they jumped out the bomb went off and they were both very badly injured but there was an old woman walking past the car and she was blown into a shop window and I remember seeing what was left of her body lying on the floor. She was still alive, but she was basically cut across her abdomen with part of her bowel hanging out and bleeding out everywhere. And there was other people lying around the street with bits of limbs missing and blood everywhere and dust and smoke and fire everywhere. And my dad grabbed me and we ran into sort of the next street parallel to it to go back to the car to go and run away and get away from this. Because it wasn't uncommon that there would be another attack shortly after the first one. And this was the first time that I'd really seen it in my life. And I was okay, I wasn't upset. And then as we were going down the, the next parallel street, the tears came. And a woman walking up the street told us people are still shopping, right? And this is only one street away. And she pointed at me and said, stop that crying. You've nothing to cry about. And my dad stopped her, grabbed her by the coat and said, a bomb has gone off in the street behind. People are dead. And because of the layout of buildings, you couldn't actually, you didn't hear the bomb go off one street away because the blast had sort of gone in and up. And she was like, oh my my God, I didn't realise. I'm sorry. But that for me, that was the moment where I decided I'm going to do something to stop this stuff. Something in my life, and I wanted to be I wanted to be a doctor, I wanted to be a trauma surgeon. But when it came to doing my exams at school, it turns out I'm not that good at the uh, the reproductive organs of a daffodil. And from screwing that exam up, I didn't get the grades to get into medical school. But my backup that I'd applied for was to study psychology and criminology. And I went off and did that. It was the best decision I ever made. And from doing that, I joined what was an organisation that doesn't exist anymore called the National Criminal Intelligence Service in the UK, then became the Serious Organised Crime Agency and nowadays is called the National Crime Agency. So I got into that, then did a Master's in Criminal Investigation. Uh, September 11th happened about nine months after I joined the office, so I spent and spent a lot of time then doing counterterrorism work based in New York and out of New York and into the Middle East and really running all of that side of business and was very lucky I had a really interesting career of managing kidnaps and assassination prevention teams and then ended up being lucky enough to be posted overseas to Europol, the EU's law enforcement agency in The Hague and then from there to Malta to run counterterrorism and human trafficking work that was coming out of North Africa during 2015 and then in the middle of that I got a call from the UN saying hey that job you applied for 18 months ago you want it? And I said, okay, when do I have to decide? And they said, tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, goodness. So it took 18 months to recruit you, but your decision had to be made in one day. Yep. How very UN, right? So uh, I went into my wife and said, 
Right, we, and just to put the context, in 2015, we had left The Hague, gone back to the UK for a fortnight, then moved to Malta, and we're now moving to Vienna, when she said, yes, let's do this. So we moved country four times in four months in 2015, which is marriage-limitingly <laughs> stupid thing to do. Um, so we took the, took the decision, and we always take the decision together on where we go and what we do, and here we are five, four and a half years later. What is your wife like? I mean, she's gone through quite a lot with I think you. A psychopath, clearly. Um, <laughs> she's amazingly strong. I mean, we we got together in two thousand and six, and our first date was the night before I was diagnosed with the first cancer. Which, I mean, in terms of a conversation starter, we had this date. She said, "You want to get together tomorrow?" I said, "Yeah, I've got to go to the hospital. Don't worry about it. I'll give you a call afterwards." And not expecting everything that then happened. And I, I rang her up and uh, she's French. And uh, what she tells me now is, I didn't understand the majority of what you said on the phone. Um, which I'm convinced is how we ended up married, frankly. But then that's a whole other story. If you hear this, I'm joking, of course. Um, but we, I called her after the hospital and said, look, um, turns out I have cancer and I might die from this. So... I suggest we have nothing further to do with each other because that is not fair on you. This is, you don't want to be in this. Here we are, six, no, 15 years later. How did she reply? Uh, she was very sweet. She said, I've waited for someone like you all my life. I'm not stopping it now. I mean, I, I don't understand. I just don't understand. It. I really don't understand it. But, you know, so we went through cancer and the mess that I was in during the first period of that and taking four and five years to recover from that initial surgery, which was not easy at all. And I really believe, and I've said this to so many people, cancer or anything like cancer, a life-limiting illness, is much, much worse on the people around you than it is on you as the patient. For me, it's my disease. I can internalise it and I can cope with that. I seem to cope with the stress of all of this without any real difficulty and I think part of that is because of the previous job I was used to taking on really high stress situations and making decisions that were life and death usually for other people rather than myself but doing it at a moment's notice and I think once you've learned the techniques for doing that and I was very lucky that in the child abuse work I had a psychologist that I had to see every three months and she gave me some really good techniques for coping with the, all the horrible stuff that I've seen and dealt with and I, I apply it in my personal life now but for my wife I, I don't know how she did it I really don't know how she did it and we've talked about it sometimes but I was saying that I have to have another big operation in a couple of weeks time and we had to sit down there I rang her coming out of the doctor and she said so and I said right we're, we got to get our game face on again and it's telling the kids and explaining this and you know I recognize that some of the Operate the operation that I'm likely to have in a few few weeks' time. There is a risk of death in that. That's just the way it is, and I recognise and I accept now. This is my life. There will be periods where I'm sick and periods where I'm recovering from being sick, but that's just life, and that's the way it is. And compared to, you know, better than anybody, Melissa, from working in refugees, there are people who have got lives that wouldn't, I couldn't even begin to imagine how difficult their lives are. I live in a place with great health care. I'm lucky enough to have a job in a time where lots of people have lost their job, I have nothing to complain about. I wonder, I mean, just reflecting on what you were saying, um, you know, you've seen a lot of the dark side of humanity and you are going personally through a health crisis that has gone on for years and years and years. How does your work and, and seeing, you know, what's out there 
influence your mental state somehow in in a positive way. I mean, yeah. I'd like to ask you also about how you overcome some of the. I'm so lucky. I've every job I've ever done. I love. I've loved my job because you can see where it has a real impact on people's lives, and where people are better for it, and where people are safer for it, and that they have privacy and human rights capabilities that they wouldn't have had before it while still their law enforcers and intelligence agencies and prosecutors have the ability to counter some of the biggest threats that that will hit them on a crime in the crime space so i love it so i wouldn't change it for a moment so neil these days you know what keeps you awake at night what keeps me awake at night um god so many things sometimes my health stuff tends to keep me awake at night and that's just physical I sleep four, four and a half hours a night, and until very recently that was usually interrupted, but a change of medication has made that better. But I've, you know, I've had disrupted sleep throughout my career because when you're working in counterterrorism, the phone rings all throughout the night with bad things happening that you have to make a judgment on or a decision on there and then. So you just become used to it, at least for me, I just became used to it. And then, so when, when having kids, then the, the, the challenge of kids who are awake at night and screaming at night, then it just became the norm. Um, but now, I mean, more philosophically, the things that keep me awake at night are I, I am genuinely worried about where we are as humanity right now, where we are with the impact that COVID is having. COVID is the great reset button of taking a step back and thinking, what the hell are we doing as a human race? What is it we need to do to survive this? This is a big warning to us. And if we don't heed that, then uh, how stupid we are. We, we need to look at what makes a difference. What ought we be focusing on? And it, you know, it amazes me. Some of the work that we do day in, day out, Melissa, where we see countries arguing with each other over things that sometimes it seems to me they've even forgotten what they're arguing on. But damn it, they are going to argue because that's what they have to do. But then you see them helping each other out to overcome the virus and sharing medical supplies and equipment and knowledge. And that's, we, we all, I know it's very Shakespearean, but if you prick us, we bleed. We all have the same stuff inside and that's what we ought to be about. What do we do to allow us to be safe, to help our world to flourish and survive? And if we, if we allow things to disintegrate and to go into some really bad spaces where we lose multilateralism and we go into unilateralism, I think, and this is my personal view, is that that's an exceptionally dangerous space to be in. What makes you hopeful? What makes me hopeful is I'm, you know, I'm incredibly lucky to have four beautiful, astoundingly erudite kids who have gone through a lot in their childhood, especially seeing what happens to me. And my, my two elder ones, uh, the, so the 10 and the 8-year-old, they remember when we were in the Netherlands that um, I had had a situation where I had to have emergency surgery because my insides had fallen apart. And they remember me getting trailed out of the house in an ambulance and screaming and drugs stuck in me and blue lights and sirens and flying off. And they remember that really clearly. And it, it will probably be one of the early memories for the sort of my, my second child. So it's guess, getting around all of that, that if we, we all have things in our lives that don't go right, and we think, oh, I wish this was better or I didn't have this. It's just the way it is. Find someone who doesn't have something in their lives and we'll find a liar, right? Everybody has something. And when we, you know, I, I'm a, I love watching people. I love just sitting in a cafe and just watching the world go on around. And I learned this when I used to, when I used to be doing surveillance as a cop and you're taught how to watch and what to look for. But I just find it, the human condition is fascinating. But I think when you see 
you know, when we see kids, especially at a young age, where you see they are born without racism, they are born without violence, they are born without hate, they are born without paranoia, they are born without all of these things. And that's why I still know, and I think you still know, that every day the sun comes up and if we're lucky enough to be sitting in a place that's safe and dry and warm and sheltered, our job is to try and give that to other people who don't have that. That's what people expect of us. And we will get past this. We will survive this. We will overcome the virus. So we just have to sometimes take a step back and think, what can we do to be better people? How do we make our world a better place? On that note, Neil, thank you so much for joining us on Awake at Night. And take care of yourself and your health. I will. Most thank importantly. You. Thank you for the, the opportunity and the honor to do it. Thank you for listening to Awake at Night. We'll be back soon with more incredible and inspiring stories from people working to do some good in this world at the time of this terrible coronavirus pandemic. To find out more about the series and the extraordinary people featured, do visit un.org slash awake at night. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Melissa Fleming. And you can follow Neil on at Neil Walsh underscore UN. And please spread the word about the series using the hashtag Awake at Night. Subscribe to Awake at Night wherever you get your podcasts and please take the time to review us. Thanks to the fantastic design and studio teams at the UN and to my producers, Bethany Bell and Laura Sheeter of Chalk and Blade. The sound design was by Pascal Wise and the original music for this podcast was written and performed by Nadine Shaw and produced by Ben Hillier.